0: We are uh, at the beginnings of a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and so far, what we've seen in the past few weeks is that John the Baptist announces Jesus. Jesus arrives on the scene. He calls his first followers, and this morning we're going to look at his first public ministry. This is him kicking off his uh, his ministry um, in his time on Earth, and. As we do this, it's good to keep in mind what Jesus' thesis statement is for this whole book and his whole ministry. What's the big picture? What's the big plan that he came to do? And he actually told us exactly what that was, not in our passage this morning, but a few verses earlier in Mark 1, verses 14 through 15. It reads, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Okay, that's the big idea. Remember high school English? You need one big idea that the whole paper hangs on. This is the big idea of the whole book of Mark. This is Jesus' thesis statement. This is what he came to do, to proclaim a gospel, which literally means the good news, an announcement that will change the world. And the content of that announcement is that the kingdom of God is at hand, okay? There, that's what Mark's about. There is a new kingdom that has arrived in this world in power. A new era has started, a new reign, a new king, a new government, and Jesus has come to announce it and to bring it. The, the whole structure of the book of Mark actually on this thesis statement, again, like a good high school English paper, okay? The whole structure of the thing centers around the declaration that the kingdom is here. And so if you zoom out and you look at the book of Mark, it basically is just three parts. The first eight chapters is Jesus demonstrating what his kingdom is like. There's a little section in the middle, verses ten or uh, chapters 8 through 10, that are sort of the discipleship section, and that's uh, Jesus explaining what his kingdom is like to his followers. First he demonstrates it, then he explains it, and then the back half of the book, the last week of Jesus's life, is when Jesus establishes his kingdom. Okay, so he demonstrates it, he talks about it, and then he finally establishes it. And that last week of Jesus's life, he establishes it in a way that no one could have guessed. Okay, this is no earthly kingdom. This is not the normal way you make a kingdom. This is an upside-down heavenly kingdom crashing into earth, and uh, it is not what we expect, but we'll get to that. I wanted to begin this morning by zooming out and thinking of the whole book of Mark and the whole structure um, that it hangs on, because our passage this morning is actually Part one is when part one starts in earnest. This, this passage that we just read is Jesus demonstrating what kind of kingdom he has come to reign over. His kingdom come on earth, okay? Heaven come on earth, just like we prayed a moment ago. A demonstration of what this new government, this new regime is going to be like. What does it look like when heaven breaks into our world? What does it look like when the king arrives and begins to demonstrate the character of the kingdom that he's come to establish? That's what our passage is about. And I want to point out two things about the character of Jesus' kingdom and then close by asking us all one simple question. So the two things that I want to show you from this passage is that when Jesus' kingdom arrives, Jesus teaches with authority and then he acts with authority, okay? And then... I just want to ask one question at the end, and that's this. What do you think of his authority? All right? What place does the authority of Jesus have in your life? So to start, Jesus teaches with a unique authority. In verse 21, beginning of our passage, we saw that Jesus and his new followers, which he had just called, we looked at that last week, arrived in Capernaum. And when they got there, they went to the synagogue. This will become a pattern with Jesus. He rolls into town, shows up at a place of worship, and begins to teach from the scrolls, from the Torah there. He's a rabbi, so he had the right to speak at a synagogue if he wanted to. And in verse 22, we read that as he was teaching from the Bible, which would have been our Old Testament, their Bible, the listeners, we read this, they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They were amazed at the authoritative teaching of Jesus. Just a few verses down, we hear that same crowd say, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? All right? When you think about authority, when you think about authoritative teaching, what comes to mind? Could be a few things. Authority could be authoritative, okay? It could be be proud, it could be boastful, it could be aggressive. Authority could also... Be like a big personality, right? Someone who kind of owns the room, and as soon as they walk in, everybody else reorients around that person. That could be what authority is like. Authority could be intellectual authority, right? You just know so much that you kind of like wow the crowd in front of you. What kind of authority did Jesus teach the Bible with? Well, we've got a clue right here in our passage. It says that his authority was not like the scribes' authority, okay? So, whatever kind of authority the scribes were working with, Jesus' was different. So who were the scribes? All right, these guys are an interesting crew. We'll run into them a few times throughout the Gospel of Mark. Um, But in this day, the scribes were the top Torah scholars. They were the Bible teachers. They were the best, all right? They were the sharpest, smartest, most influential guys in the room. But they weren't just Bible nerds. They were politically powerful. They were socially influential. So one uh, commentary I was reading this week on this describe the scribes this way. The scribes combined the roles of Bible professor, teacher, moralist, and civil lawyer. Their erudition, their intelligence and prestige reached a legendary proportion in the first century, surpassing even the high priest at times. Only scribes, apart from the chief priests and members of the patrician families, could enter the Sanhedrin, which was the top religious body commoners deferred to scribes as they walked through the streets. So if you saw a scribe coming, you stepped out of the way. Let them go. And the first seats in the synagogue were reserved for scribes. And people rose to their feet when they entered the room, okay? like you do with the President of the United States. In other words, these guys were boss. All right? These guys were the bomb. It's something like the combination of a tenured Harvard professor, the most articulate and compelling preacher that you've ever heard, um, and also someone with the power and the social capital of like a multi-million dollar businessman, okay? That sounds like authority. I mean, every worldly tick of authority that you're looking for, they got it. They got the smarts, they got the influence, they got the prestige, the most educated guys in the room, but this is saying Jesus' authority was not like their authority. There's something else was going on when Jesus opens his word and explains it to these people. What did Jesus have that they didn't have when he opened the scriptures? It wasn't how well he knew the text or how well he communicated the text or how emotional he was when he taught it. He didn't have better illustrations. Okay, He didn't tell better stories than them. He didn't have a more commanding voice. The difference between Jesus and even the best Bible teachers in the history of the world is that everyone else reads the Bible and teaches what they learn, okay? But Jesus wrote the Bible and teaches who he is as he explains it. The difference between, this is the difference between an author speaking about their own book and a reader or a critic, even the most um, appreciative one and knowledgeable one, explaining what they read in someone else's book. This is God himself explaining his own word to them. Men, no wonder they were amazed. Can you imagine being in that room and hearing Jesus explain the Bible that he wrote? Think of what that would be like. They were amazed at his authority. Jesus is the author of life. He's the author of your life. He's the author of my life. He wrote us into existence. He spoke creation into existence. And when he speaks about you, in his word. Okay? In this book when he speaks about you and when he speaks about me, he doesn't do it as a scribe. He doesn't do it as someone who understands a lot about the world, who has who has researched it and knows it even really really well. He speaks about your life and mine as the one who wrote your life and mine. It's an authority no one else can claim. I mean, there've been a lot of great and wise teachers throughout human history. And and we can glean and should glean a lot of wisdom from people. There have been students of nature and culture and the human spirit from Gandhi to Buddha to Bach to Kierkegaard to Homer Simpson. I mean, we have got folks that we can look to for wisdom, right? But all their wisdom is of the same kind. It's all wisdom of the scribes. It's all wisdom of those who have studied the way the world works and can, glean, and can see the beauty and the truth and the goodness there and point us to it. But the authority that Jesus has is the authority of an author. That's where that word comes from. The authorial authority is the authority that Jesus has. When he opens his mouth, it's of a different kind of insight. He wrote your life into existence. And when he says things about you, It's true. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than anyone else in this world can know you. This is no ordinary book. And so when the author of life explains life back to you, listen up, right? When he says crazy stuff like it's actually better to give away than to receive, we think no possible way that's better. I know it's better to receive. But he says it's not. I wrote your life. Whose authority are you going to believe? okay? And when he says it's better to forgive and not to hold grudges and, and, and to bear the cost of another person's decision as if it were your own cost, you think, no way, that can't be better. The author of your life says it is. The one who wrote you into existence speaks to you with an authority you can trust. Jesus, the king, teaches with the authority that only the author has. And then he goes on to act with the authority that only the author of life has. Right? Mark records three miracles for us in these opening events of Jesus' public ministry. First, Jesus casts out a demon while he's teaching in the synagogue. Then he visits Peter's home, who is his recent disciple he just picked up at the at the lake fishing. He called Peter, Peter followed. And now he goes to Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law is ill and he heals her. And finally we see Jesus heal a leper. Now we don't have time to unpack all of these in much detail. We're going to have opportunities to see more of Jesus' miracles as we march through the book of Mark. But I don't think it's an accident Mark stacked these three miracles for us as Jesus kicks off his ministry. This is Jesus demonstrating his kingdom. Remember, he's demonstrating what his reign will be like now that he has arrived in the world. What does it look like when heaven breaks into this earth? What does it look like when the king arrives? I think Mark's telling us in these three miracles that it looks like Jesus brings holistic health to our world and to our lives. Take the demon-possessed man to start. This man is under spiritual attack. This is not the way it's supposed to work, right? This is a broken system, okay? God did not create the spiritual beings to possess and lie to and tempt his human beings. He created them to serve and encourage and strengthen us. But the system is broken. And when Jesus comes, he fixes a broken system, okay? He intervenes miraculously in this man's life. He breaks the bonds of spiritual slavery and he sets this man free, right? That's what the kingdom of God looks like when it arrives in power, setting us spiritually free to move into the world. Take Peter's mother-in-law next. Her body is breaking down. She's ill. She's bedridden. Verse 31 says really simply, Jesus came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them again. When heaven arrives on earth, there's health where there once was illness. Okay, physically emotionally, spiritually, relationally. And I love that little throwaway line, uh, which is not a throwaway line because there are no throwaway lines in the Bible, but it feels like you're reading it along and it just feels like a throwaway line. Uh, He just says, and then she began to serve him food again, right? She began to serve him a meal. Now, this is not a commentary on a woman's place uh, or a mother's place. There are bad jokes here and I will absolutely not make them. Jesus himself, the perfect man, stoops down to wash his disciples' feet. Okay, this is not a gender commentary. This is a mission and vocation commentary that Jesus is making in this little throwaway line. When um, the reign of King Jesus arrives in the world, what he does is he restores health so that we can be a source of health to others, right? He comes and he serves us so that all of us then may go and serve those around us. He lays out his meal of grace that we'll enjoy together in a few minutes so that we can then go and serve grace to one another. That's what's happening here. He heals this woman and she goes out into the world on his mission and serves. Throwaway line, but it never is. Finally, Jesus, mirac- Jesus miracul- miraculously heals a leper. Now, this is probably more than any of these other miracles embodies the kingdom of God fully. Why is that? Because of what leprosy was in the ancient world. Okay, in case you're not up to date on your first century ancient Near East diseases, uh, let me fill you in. Leprosy. This is basically what was going on. Uh, it was a disease that attacked your nervous system. And so you, over time, you, could, you would be desensitized and you could feel less and less of your body, your skin and eventually your limbs. Like everything would go numb. Okay, and so it was believed that leprosy like caused parts of your bodies to fall off. That's actually not what was happening. What was happening was you became so desensitized physically that as you would do damage to yourself, you wouldn't know it. Okay, so you'd smash a finger in a door, and you you wouldn't even feel it, right? So these folks with this disease, I mean, it was devastating. Parts of their body over time would just disintegrate away because of the desensitization that this disease caused to you physically all right? That wasn't even the worst part. The worst part was that this was highly contagious, all right? And the Bible spends a lot of time talking about leprosy, in fact, more time than any other disease. And in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 13, it outlines really specifically what folks with leprosy have to do, okay? They can't wear normal clothes. They can't even, like, keep their hair clean. They have to be all disheveled looking. They have to wear Uh, cloth over their face so that they don't spread the disease. They weren't allowed within 50 feet of anybody else. And as they approached anyone else, any community, any people, they had to declare themselves unclean, okay? They had to yell, unclean, unclean, I'm coming into the room. Now, can you imagine having a disease where every room you walk into for the rest of your life, you declare yourself unclean. You declare yourself unfit for human company, You're not allowed um, near your friends or your family. You're not even allowed near um, the people of God as they worship God anymore, okay? You are isolated, you're an exile, you're an outcast, and it's incurable. I think the Bible talks more about leprosy than any other disease because leprosy is an illustration. Leprosy is a metaphor for all of us. I think what the Bible is saying is that what happens to us physically in leprosy has happened to us spiritually as sin has devastated this world. Okay, the, sin, the real disease that governs this world is sin. And what happens to you physically in leprosy happens to you spiritually as sin takes over. You, are, you become desensitized. We become desensitized to the damage that sin does in the world. We become desensitized to the way that we're hurting others and and even the damage we're doing to ourselves. We don't feel it as much over time. Sin's contagious. It's spread through all of humankind and, and and it just perpetuates itself, right? Lies beget more lies. Greed begets more greed. Selfishness begets more selfishness. Sin makes us numb. Sin's contagious. Worst of all, sin isolates us, doesn't it? We're unclean because of our sin. We're, 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 we, we hurt one another. We push one another away, and we isolate one another. We, we have become isolated from God, the very author of life. Okay? You'll notice when this man comes to Jesus, he doesn't actually ask to be healed of his disease. He doesn't come to Jesus and ask for healing. What does he ask for? Verse 40, he says, if you will, can you make me clean? You see what he's done? He's saying he's asked to be cleansed. He's asking to be re-included, to be reconnected to his friends and his family and the people of God. The, The isolation, the exile is what he needs healing from. The disease is just the cause, okay? The result is that he has been removed from the relationships that bring life. And in verse 41, Jesus moved with pity, stretched out his hand, and touched him. And said to him, I will do this. Be clean. Okay? The reason this is incredible, and the reason I think this miracle kind of stands at the hearts of the image of the kingdom of God coming into this world, is that no one, and I mean no one, touches a leper. Okay? No one touches a leper. But Jesus, moved with pity, does. He touches that man's disease, and instead of that man's disease spreading to Jesus, What happens? Jesus' cleanliness spreads to that man, okay? The, The contagious thing when Jesus interacts with somebody is not the disease, but his holiness. His holiness is what is spreading in the world as he has arrived as our king. But notice this too. Again, these throwaway lines that aren't throwaway lines. Verse 45 we read that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he was out in a desolate place. That's interesting, because that describes exactly the leper's situation before he interacted with Jesus. This encounter begins with the leper isolated in a desolate place and alone, and and, and Jesus included, Jesus in the town on the inside, and it ends with Jesus isolated and excluded outside of town, and the leper on the inside, reunited with his friends, his family, and the worshiping people of God. And this is Mark dropping hints for how the kingdom of God comes about. Jesus stands in our place so that we might stand in his. Right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. He goes, he bears the effects of our disease so that we might be free to live as he designed us to live. He died the death we deserve so we may have the life that only he deserves. this is what we've seen so far in Mark 1. What does it look like when heaven breaks into our world? The author of life comes to teach us authoritatively about full life in him. And then he comes to restore full life in him. He speaks as an authoritative king and he acts as an authoritative king. Now, before we move on to our last question, is all this going to happen tomorrow or this afternoon? No. Much of God's work in this broken world is only going to be fully experienced, fully realized when he comes back again to reign as king visibly as he reigns as king now in heaven. But is this happening now? I mean, are all these things that we've discussed happening right now in our hearts and in our families and in our community and in our church? I mean, you better believe it, right? Like the kingdom of God is here And it's at work. And Jesus the king is is bringing healing where there was illness. He's bringing forgiveness where there was shame. He's bringing inclusion where there was separation. He's bringing cleanliness and wholeness where there was isolation and there was uncleanliness. These things are happening. His spiritual authority brings protection and freedom. His physical authority brings healing and restoration. His relational authority brings reconciliation and peace. That's just a snapshot of the kingdom in Mark 1. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what he's up to even now. So to wrap up, one simple question and one story. The simple question is this. How do you respond to the claims of Jesus' authority over your life? It's a simple question. It's not actually an easy question, though. Because it's a very simple one. I mean, you've heard his claim as king. You've heard that every, he owns all things, and here's his plan. He's going to speak about the way your life works because he wrote it, and then he's going to fix the way your life works because he has the power to do it. Okay, That's what he's up to. Do you want to be a part of it? Is that the kingdom you want to be in? Simple question. And the answer seems obvious, but it's not easy, is it? Because by asking that question, you're also asking another question. Does Jesus' word, his authoritative, authorial word, take the top spot in your life? I mean, do his instructions and his commands and his promises, do they reign in your hearts like they reign in the world? Does his voice have authority over every other voice, even your own voice? That's the question. Here's a story. After college, I spent a year in Kenya, And I was uh, basically a missionary intern um, for part of the time. And then part of the time, I just climbed sweet mountains and did awesome stuff. Okay, so we, uh, you know, rafted the Nile. um, We uh, climbed Kilimanjaro. uh, We climbed Mount Kenya, which um, not a lot of people know is like, you know, just below Kilimanjaro, 17,000 feet. So it's no joke either. Um, And that one actually has a 1,000-foot rock face, vertical rock face at the end that you got to go up. So I hired a Kenyan guide, and he and I kind of all the way up. Uh, It was great. But craziest thing we did while I was in Kenya was we decided that there was a 20-mile band of jungle that surrounded Mount Kenya. And I lived in a town just on um, the outskirts of that jungle. And so I I woke up every morning and if it wasn't foggy, I could see Mount Kenya in the distance, one of the most beautiful places on earth. And uh, there is a road you can take through the jungle. You can take a jeep. But we did that once. And so we wanted to try you know, hiking through the jungle on our own. So we packed enough stuff uh, to, to get us through, you know, two days. We figured 20 miles, we could knock that out. And we took off through the Kenyan jungle with no trail and um, a map, but frankly, the map had no, char- no trails on it because there were no trails. So it was just kind of told us the direction we were supposed to go. So we are, and we had a compass, all right? So we are deep in this jungle. And man, at times, the canopy's so thick that it's midday and the sun is not coming through. I mean, we're in the shade the whole time. There are elephants in this jungle. There are leopards in this jungle. There are rhinoceroses in this jungle. We didn't see any of those three, though we heard one of the larger two breathing at night. We just weren't sure which one uh, while we were in our tent. And so we are hiking through this jungle. And this is what happened. At certain times... The way the land sort of laid, and the way that the sun came through the canopy, and the way that we just had a sense of what direction that we were supposed to go to make it out the other side okay, and I would have bet everything I owned that the way we were supposed to go is this way, okay? I mean, clearly, uphill, I'm climbing a mountain, I should go that way, okay? That I would have been tracking the sun, and that's the direction I'm supposed to go. And then, wisely enough, we consult the compass, And the compass says to go this way. Okay, now what has happened? I have a crisis of authority, don't I? I've got to decide which voice I believe the most. And one is like all the sensory data I've been taking in, my own intuition, common sense, the lay of the land, the sun, like all of it points in one direction. Every single voice, I am certain that is the way to get me safely out of this jungle so I don't get stepped on by an elephant. And this little thing I'm holding in my hand, this little compass, says, nope, go this way. What do I do? What would your advice to me be? Trust the compass, right? (laughs) Like, just forget all the other voices. Put them aside. Like, there is a word that is coming in from the outside that is telling you this is the way to life. Okay, this is going to bring you out of the darkness and the chaos and the danger. Here is the way to life. You and I have a crisis of authority in our spiritual lives. There is a word that has come to us from the outside that says, I wrote your life. I love you. I know what's best for you. And I'm telling you, this is the way. Trust my promises, okay? Live as I've called you to live. This is the way to joy and flourishing and eternal life. And we have these intuitions. And sometimes it seems so obvious and so clear that this is the way to go. And there are so many other voices in our culture saying, no, 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 here's the way to true life. And we have a crisis of authority. And the question is, whose voice are you going to trust? Whose voice are you going to trust? Whose voice reigns in your heart and your mind as king, just like he reigns in this world as king? Of course there will be costs to following Jesus. Okay, of course there'll be costs. We're going to have to give up things that are precious to us. We're going to have to do things that are hard. We're going to have to move in directions that don't feel comfortable or are awkward or are pushing us in directions that we don't want to go because it seems so clear that we should go this way. But his word of life comes to us from the outside. And our loving king says, Trust me, I have the best for you in mind. Yes, there will be costs. But just like Paul tells us in Romans 8, the costs of following Jesus in this world will not even compare to the glory that awaits us when he arrives as our king. Jesus is the king. And he has come to establish a kingdom of life and joy. And he's described it to us in this book. It's a word from the outside. And it is the voice of the king, for your good. Let's believe it. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for your word to us, the word of life. Thanks that you authored our life and that we're gracious enough to come and restore our life at great cost to yourself. You brought us back into your family by being taken out of your family. Jesus, help us trust your word Help us love your word. Help us study it. Help us meditate on it. Help us just help it reign in our hearts. Help it reign in our community. Help us trust you and take great delight in all you've done for us. You are our king. Help us follow you. Amen.